uh, where we're covering the book of Luke. And so those of you who know sort of the story of the book of Luke, there's this guy named Luke who was a Gentile. He was a doctor. And uh, he was friends with a guy named Theophilus, uh, who also was a Gentile. So these are non-Jewish people who had become Christians. And so one of the things that we think maybe happened was that Theophilus maybe sponsored Luke, we're not exactly sure, for Luke to go do a research project and to find out if all this stuff about Jesus was actually true. And so part of what we're reading as we read through the book of Luke is actually Luke going and investigating the claims of all of these people. And so this story, this history of this thing that we call Advent or the Christmas story, the incarnation, is ultimately rooted in history, right? And so that's where we find ourselves today. We're actually in Luke chapter 2. So we've taken a look at Luke chapter 1 where Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, hey, by the way, this great thing's going to happen to you. You're going to give birth to the Messiah. And then we see her response as she writes this song of praise for what God is doing in her and through her. And then this morning, we're taking a look at the birth of Jesus and this announcement to the shepherds, which we've already seen this morning in the children's nativity. Um, One clarification before we jump in. Last week, I used the illustration of going to Steak and Shake in the morning. You guys, anybody here last week and wondered about this? I've had a few people ask me about it. Uh, I told you about how Krista was merciful to me and that she brought my, my phone as a combination phone and wallet, and I got to Steak and Shake, ordered my food, and then realized I didn't have my wallet or phone with me. And, uh, some of, and then I texted her to let her know that I was stranded there and couldn't leave. I needed her to bring my wallet and how she responded really sweetly and kindly by bringing it. And some of you were like, how did you text her if you didn't have your phone? And just to clarify, I texted her from my computer. Uh, that's how I do most of my texting. I had to get on to Days In Wireless and text her from there. So that's the answer to the mystery. Some of you, I make up so many stories that you guys, you know, some of you thought maybe BP's making up another story. Anyway, which I will do plenty in the future, but that was actually a true one. All right, let me take a moment, let's pray, and then we will answer that question that one of the kiddos uh, posed and answered this morning about the real meaning of Christmas. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, thanks again for this morning. Thank you for inviting us into this place. More than anything, we thank you for inviting us into a relationship with with you through your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we are here today at your invitation. And uh, as always, I ask, Father, that you wouldn't let anyone leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. So it's funny. We had our staff Christmas lunch this past week, 
And somebody posed the question, what's your favorite Christmas movie? And different people around the table went around and told their Christmas, favorite Christmas movies. And I sat there for a second, and I couldn't really remember what my favorite Christmas movie was. And all of a sudden, I remembered, oh, yeah, it's the Charlie Brown Christmas. We used to watch that when our kids were little until they got to a point where I was like, hey, let's watch it together. They were all kind of like, eh, I don't think so. But regardless, Linus does a good job of explaining the true story of Christmas. And not only that, he actually quotes Luke chapter 2, which is the, the story that we're going to read today. And so I'm going to just invite you to jump into Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Linus has already read it for us, but I'm going to read it, and I'm going to add some commentary along the way. Uh, so again, beginning in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so very quickly, what we see in this passage is there really are two points of historical reference that Luke is giving us here. One, he's telling us that this was when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. And two, he's telling us that this was when Quirinius was uh, the governor there. And uh, we know that these are two things that we find in history. One, Josephus, who's a first century historian, tells us about Quirinius who came to power in uh, AD 6. But not only that, we know that Caesar Augustus ruled until AD 14. In fact, uh, the very first time that Chris and I were in uh, Rome, not Rome, Georgia, but Rome, Italy, um, we had a guidebook, and we looked in the guidebook, and we decided which places we were going to visit in Rome, Italy. And so we went to the you know, Vatican, and we went to the Colosseum, we went to all these different places. What's interesting is we found ourselves in one of the last days we were there in Rome. We had walked across the city. We were tired, and we found this wall, and we sat down on this wall, and behind us was this sort of big green hill. And as we were sitting there on the wall, we turned and looked, and there was a plaque, and on the plaque it said that this is the mausoleum of Caesar Augustus. And what was interesting about that is that it didn't even make the guidebook. Like, there's so many wonderful, amazing pieces of history in Rome, Italy, that they were like, it's not even worth putting in there, right? But again, we know that part of what Luke is doing here is he's saying, this is not a myth, this is actually a story that is rooted in history, that it actually happened in time and in space. Back to verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, registered for the purpose of taxation. The, the Romans were good at that. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So you had to go back to where your family was from, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, so they were leaving from Nazareth. Nazareth was a little bitty city. It was a, really a city of about 500 people that was to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And they had to make their way all the way to Bethlehem, which was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It was about a 120-mile trip, right? And that 120-mile trip this summer took us probably about two and a half hours by car. It would have taken uh, Joseph and Mary about 10 days on the back of a donkey, right? And it wasn't just that they were riding a donkey. Joseph probably, hopefully, would have been leading this donkey. He would have been walking. Mary would have been riding, but she would have been pregnant. And so women, just imagine yourself for seven to ten days riding on the back of a donkey from one place to another in the heat of Israel. But again, this fulfilled the prophecy that we read about in Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And they weren't even married yet. It says they were still in this phase called betrothal, right? And so Joseph is taking his uh, wife-to-be all the way on this exhausting journey for taxation purposes. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn, right? And so just imagine this scene again. They're on this long journey by donkey. They get to Bethlehem. When they're there, it doesn't say that there was no room for them in an inn. It says there was no room for them in the inn, right? This was another kind of nothing town, another small town. There's no room for them in the inn. And so presumably this innkeeper or someone in town said, hey, you're welcome to use our barn or more likely a cave where they would have kept the animals because it would have been warm. And so they take this offer to go into this cave or go into this barn where then Mary gives birth to Jesus on the floor of a barn in the floor of a cave surrounded by animals. And it says that she wraps him in swaddling clothes, which would have just been strips of cloth. And they laid him in a manger, right? And so we see that our, we have our sort of uh, artist rendition of a manger up here, but it really would have been a feeding trough. And this would have been a feeding trough that would have been used by sheep or goats or oxen or cows with feed or hay or whatever in it, an animal, animal saliva. And Mary lays Jesus in this manger in Bethlehem, in this barn, in this cave. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now just think about this for a second in context. Uh, Shepherds were not even allowed to testify in court, right? They were considered to be sort of the lowest of the low, right? They were considered to be thieves or they were considered to be dishonest. They were definitely considered to be lower class. And here this angel comes to them and says, this good news is for all people, right? And and this amazing announcement is given to the lowest of the low, right? We see that's, that's sort of Throughout Jesus' ministry, that's kind of always who he went to. He always went to the outcasts. He always went to the lowest of the low. He always went to the poor. He always went to the people who knew their need of him. You know, when we send our Christmas cards out and we send those pictures of our family out, we usually send them to people who are our good friends. Or maybe if you work for a college or maybe if you work for some other organization, you might send them out to influential people, right? But here God sends his announcement not to influential people, not to wealthy people, not to powerful people, but he sends out this message of the birth of this Savior to the lowest of the low, right? And the message of the gospel is always for outsiders, right? It's always for Samaritans. It's always for Roman centurions. It's for wayward women. It's for prostitutes, for tax collectors, the sick, the poor, the broken, 15-year-old girls, shepherds, Iranian astronomers, you and me. And this message was and is for all people, but it's precisely for those people who recognize their need of a Savior, right? It's for the outsiders. It's for the little guy. It's for the lowest of the low. And God makes this announcement to these shepherds out in the fields. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Again, not in a rich man's house, not in a shiny, germ-free maternity ward, or even in someone's guest room, but again, in a feeding trough, surrounded by barnyard animals. Verse 13. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so it's not enough just to send this angel to make this proclamation, you know, in the middle of the night to these shepherds out in the field. God then surrounds this angel and the sky with a heavenly host, which is the verb there, the word there means an army. And so it's this multitude of an angelic army. This, this army of angels appears probably scaring these shepherds to death, right? But they get the message, and the message is this, is that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. Go and find him. They couldn't miss it. And so the question for all of us this morning is this, what are the main ideas of this passage? Any good preacher could, could really talk about any number of different themes. He could talk about God becoming a man. That's this idea of what we call the incarnation. It's really this amazing idea that that God entered into human history, that God entered into humanity in order to feel and experience humanity, also to redeem us, obviously, to save us, right? We could talk about that. We could talk about this idea of joy to the world, that there's really going to be a happy ending, therefore we can be joyful. For unto you is born a Savior. Talk about that. He could talk about glory to God in the highest, the idea of giving glory to God. We could talk about the good news being for all people. We already touched upon that. A good preacher could talk about any of those things and would be justified in doing so. I'm going to choose one thing very briefly today to talk about, and it's this. It's that the story of Christmas, the story of Advent, is ultimately an offer of peace from God to man. That the story of Advent, the story of Christmas, is an offer of peace from God to man. Listen to verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel, this one angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, this army of angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's an offer of peace. So typically when we think about peace, we think about the absence of conflict, right? The absence of conflict. And the truth is that's partially right. But any good counselors in the room would tell you that sometimes the absence of peace is simply because one person is keeping their mouth shut about the ways in which they've been hurt or the ways in which they've felt resentful, right? And and so that's not all of this peace is cracked up to be, right? It's more than that. It's bigger than that. The word translated peace in this passage is the Greek word irene, irene. And what this word irene means is it means to be made whole. It's very different than just the absence of conflict. This word means to be made whole, or it also means a state of of being where everything is made right. Does that make sense? To be made whole, where everything is made right, where everything is, is sort of as it was intended to be. Part of what we know about World War II was we know that one of the reasons that World War II ended, at least in the Pacific, was because on August the 6th, 1945, uh, a bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. This bomb was dropped on Hiroshima in the morning, and it ultimately destroyed over four square miles of of, uh, buildings and of humanity. It was just this amazingly destructive act. And uh, part of what we know about it is that ultimately, you know, many, many people died and everything was destroyed. It was absolutely wiped out. We have a picture of it, actually. The lighting's not going to be very good, but there's a picture of a man standing amidst rubble. And in the background of the rubble, we see a particular building. This building was the Prefectural Industrial Promotional Hall. 
And it was one of the few buildings that was left standing. And you can just, again, sort of barely see the outline there amidst all of the destruction. Well, in 1954, uh, there were some various people that got together to say, let's make this the site of sort of rebuilding Japan to remember the destruction of Hiroshima, but also to look forward to the rebuilding of it. And you can see this is actually the same vantage point. The picture's not very good. We've got some bright light, unfortunately, on the screen. But what you can see there is you can see that there's a wonderful pool surrounded by gardens. And on the outside of the gardens, there are beautiful trees And in the distance, you have that same building that they left standing as a reminder of Hiroshima and the bomb that was dropped in 1945. But this is a picture of the type of peace that's being talked about here in Luke chapter 2, this Irene, where everything is made right, where everything is made whole. And so that's part of what the angels are saying here to the shepherds is that this world that you're living in is not the way that it's supposed to be, right? A bomb was dropped on humanity thousands of years ago when the fall occurred. What we see now is that there's cancer, and what we see now is there's broken relationships, and what we see now is there's psychological brokenness. And part of what Jesus was saying and what the angels were saying about Jesus coming to earth is that he was coming to bring peace. He was coming to progressively make everything to be whole, to make everything the way that it was intended to be. So broadly, this peace that we read about here, this Irene, we see that it means sort of this, you know, bringing back to things being the way they were created to be. In Hebrew, the word is shalom, and it's a picture of everything being made right, physically, relationally, psychologically, and spiritually. Again, everything that was lost in the fall. And so part of this message of peace for all mankind is that ultimately in the redemption of all things, that there will be no more cancer, no more diabetes or the flu, but everything will be made right. And not just right physically, but right relationally, right? No more gossip, no more slander, no more envy, no more lying, no more divorce, no more broken relationships. It's not just physical, it's not just relational, however, it's even psychological. And so part of this offer of peace, everything being made right, especially in this Christmas season, is it's a promise of no more anxiety, no more depression, no more narcissism, no more attachment disorder, no more paranoia, right? It's all made right, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And of course, one of the biggest things that's offered in this offer of peace is being made right with God, that everything is restored, everything is made right, everything is made whole again. And that's really, again, what the angels have said here. They say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests, right? That this spiritual peace, this physical peace, this emotional peace, this relational peace, it's not for everyone, unfortunately, but it is for those upon whom his favor rests. And so the question is, on whom does God's favor rest? We have to jump a little bit further into the story of the New Testament to hear the answer of whom God's favor rests upon and who has this peace. Romans chapter 5 answers the question for us. Paul says this, Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, those people who have recognized their need of a Savior, the people who have recognized and been willing to admit their brokenness, those people who have given up trying to please and earn God's favor on their own and have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, that those people have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Paul goes on to say this. He says in verse 6, when we were utterly helpless, right? We couldn't do anything for ourselves. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not willingly die for an upright person, right? We wouldn't even die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, while we were still in rebellion against him, while we had nothing to offer him, that's precisely when God said, I'm coming to the rescue. I'm coming to bring you back into a relationship with me. I'm coming to bring peace. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now listen to what we gain from this peace. Verse 10, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. What do we get through this peace? We get a restored friendship with God, right? The way that it was created to be is we were created to walk with God in the garden. That's what Adam and Eve were created to do. It's what we're created to do. We're created to be friends of God, to be in relationship with him. That is good news, and it's almost hard to believe. It's almost, it almost sounds too good to be true, but in case you think that, Paul goes further and drives the point home a little deeper in verse 11. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Friends of God. I don't know about you guys. I I'm made it very clear. I'm, I struggle with self-loathing. Like that's just one of the things that, that I'm working through in my life. Um, but to be called a friend of God, right, because of this offer of peace is an amazing offer, right? One of the things that I struggle with the most, I, I, I believe that God exists. I really do. Like I don't struggle with that. I believe that Jesus came to rescue and redeem us. I don't struggle with that. I even believe that Jesus can rescue me, that he's willing to save me. But what I do wrestle with, that I do struggle with to believe, is that God doesn't simply look down on me with a furrowed brow in disgust or displeasure or dismay, right? That's what I struggle with. And so when I read this, that so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God, part of me just thinks that's that's what I hope is true. If I can believe that's true, then I can, actually, I can actually come to God, right? I can come to God knowing that Christ has forgiven me for my sins and that now when God looks at me, he doesn't see me as unclean or as an enemy, but rather he looks at, at me as a friend, right? And like any good friend, he welcomes me into his presence and he says, what can I do for you? How can I help you out? And this is an amazing offer of peace that we can be friends with God. And so the question for you and for me today is where do you stand with God today? Do you believe that by Jesus' perfect life, his sacrifice, his substitutionary death, his miraculous resurrection, that you have peace with God, that you're a friend of God, that because of Jesus, all things will be made new, that our hope, that is our hope this Advent season, that we can have the hope of being friends and having peace with God. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you that 
Jesus is always telling us things that we don't know how in the world to, to reconcile with what we believe about reality. And Father, one of those things that I think we all struggle to believe um, is that we could be accepted by you. And Father, not just accepted by you, but that we could have peace with you, that we could be friends, that you would count us as friends. And so, Father, I pray this morning that the message of Advent, that this message of the Incarnation would be precisely that, that because of our um, willingness to trust in your Son, Jesus, as our Savior, that you look now upon us as friends. And so, Father, let that be our hope. Father, let that be our peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.